Does your salary affect how you use the Thrift Savings Plan? The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board dove into this question, conducting a behavioral study of thousands of lower-income federal employees who participate in the TSP. Here to break down this crucial question, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, let's start with why they were looking at this, how people at lower incomes use the TSP. So this is something where they're trying to get a better sense of how to remove some barriers that might exist for accessing TSP's benefits and services. It's also related somewhat to the executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, looking at how underserved groups specifically use the TSP. TSP and some of the benefits that are available under those. For this specific study, they looked at the lowest 20%, so that lowest quintile of federal employees. By salary. Yes, by salary. So the lowest paid federal employees, just in that lowest 20%, who were under 50 years old. Kind of a funny way they put it, though. It's not that they don't have access to the TSP the same as everybody. It's more underutilizing than being underserved. Right. So instead of just looking at they don't necessarily not have access to these, but just trying to create a better understanding of what is really available and how much they need to contribute to get the matching rate. Right. So it's a question maybe of financial literacy as to what they can do to start taking care of their long-term future. It may be that people at that income level just need some knowledge there. Yes. And they conducted several focus groups of some of these employees who were invested in the TSP, and they found that there are some histories or different understandings of retirement savings. They said this isn't necessarily representative of that whole group, but they did get a couple interesting pieces of feedback. So social scientist Elizabeth Perry, who's at the board's Office of Communications and Education, explained a couple of notable things that they heard in some of those sessions. Some participants said that they learned from their families how important it was to save in general, to put something away whenever you could. Others said that they learned specific advice about saving, such as try to max out, but always get the full match. And they said that their families have been saving all of their lives, which influenced them to do the same. Still others said that their parents worked very hard but may not have had a lot saved. And these participants were motivated by wanting to support those who depended on them, even though they were relatively young. Lastly, most seemed to understand the match pretty well, though some gaps did exist. And that's social scientist Elizabeth Perry at the board's Office of Communications and Education. And besides discovering that she needs a new microphone cable, what did they do with the data that they compiled on behalf of the board? So they took all this data in. The One of the most notable things that they actually found was that about 35% of that lowest quintile had no account activity after the automatic 3% enrollment. So this is something where their goal was basically, okay, let's try to get that group of federal employees who are at the 3% contribution rate up to the 5% requirement to get the matching contributions from the employer. So they tested different types of messaging that might influence or encourage those workers to invest more in their TSP accounts. Right. So they did almost like targeted advertising or targeted information. Exactly. So this was a it was a three month campaign where they basically sent a couple of email messages to about 3000 active federal employees. One of the messages was talking about you've missed out on X amount of dollars. The other message was more than 80% of federal employees are already saving enough to get the full match. So trying to you know, compare and see what type of messaging would 
be most successful to get them to enroll. And then they also had, of course, a control group with no messaging at all. So some of the results of the testing were pretty interesting, and Perry detailed some of those findings. 15 to 17 percent had increased their contributions, which we were happy with. And the average increase was about $70 a month. And if that is maintained until age 65, based on median ages, you're looking at roughly $73,000 more in their accounts, which is almost double their current salary. So potentially another year or more in retirement. Right. So, yes, advertising works. In other words, to convince people to save their own money, which is not a trivial finding, actually. It's a crucial finding for those at the lower income levels. Anything else from the study noteworthy? They did have another separate but related study that looked at some data that basically revealed that TSP participants who were over 50 years old were often incorrectly using their their catch-up program. So Perry did catch up program, which yes. means so what? catch up contributions to so contributing more to your retirement savings if maybe you didn't contribute enough earlier on in your career. So Perry explained a little bit more about what they were seeing as this issue. They used to have to make two separate elections, one for regular and one for catch up. And they had to figure out how best to time both of these and not hit the limits. And we learned tens of thousands were having trouble with this and were missing out on matching. So we also heard from our trainers that participants were confused a little bit by the program. So based on that, they simplified the process. Instead of having to make an election where you're actively trying to opt into something, now it's automatically this spillover to catch up contributions that would actually also be eligible for matching. So that makes it easier for the board to track. And it resulted in about $80 million additional of catch-up contributions for TSP, which is the most ever for the the program. I think people find, you know, once they begin having automatic deductions from their salary, if you notch it up a little bit, it's like boiling the frog. You don't feel it that much, but yet it has a huge leverage downstream with the power of compounding interest. And if you can teach them that, then maybe a little bit of pain, maybe buying the white bread at the store instead of the whole wheat for a couple months might make a difference for how long you can retire for. And also the board shared its annual participant satisfaction survey results. People pretty happy with TSP? So this was a little bit interesting, Tom, because the when the survey was administered to TSP participants was actually before this whole thing that we've been talking about for several months with the update to my account and roll over to the new record keeping system for TSP. The overall satisfaction rate, keeping that in mind, was at 87%, which is only a slight decline from what it was in 2021. That's something it might be interesting to see kind of how that develops next year once we have this these past few months captured in the survey data as well. Right. So the, the really big difficulties came between surveys. <laughs> so exactly. it's kind of hard to tell what people thought. At some point, It was so bad, people wondered if their funds were even safe, right? Right. There were a lot of concerns about that. And the board has been very adamant to say that all the funds are very secure and everything is captured on the back end. Even if there were some initial rollout issues, they said that they have worked through most of those by now. And they're hoping that participants are going to hopefully pick up their satisfaction rates a little bit. Right. And it's real money, not Bitcoin on a blockchain. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style d- 
developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. 
Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Read the explosive New York Times bestseller, Empire of Pain, by acclaimed New Yorker reporter Patrick Radden Keefe. Slate says it's a real-life version of the HBO series Succession with a lethal sting in its tail, a masterful work of narrative reportage. 
Now is the perfect time to read this gripping account of the meteoric rise and staggering fall of the Sackler dynasty. Empire of Pain is now available in paperback from Anchor Books.